Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation podcast that goes behind the scenes and in-depth with each month's cover story author. I'm your host, Dan Lucas, the Senior Director of Strategic Communication at U.S. Chess, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with an educational mission of empowering people through chess one move at a time. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, or if you're already a member, please consider donating to us by clicking on the Give button. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print or digital copies of Chess Life and Chess Life Kids, promotional discounts at uscfsales.com, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. Now start your clock and let's listen to this month's edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. So I'd like to welcome back to our show Al Lawrence. Al is wrote our November cover story on the U.S. Open. Uh, Al is the former executive director of the U.S. Chess Federation. He's the current managing director of the U.S. Chess Trust. He is a chair of the College Chess Committee for U.S. Chess. But kind of importantly to this article that he wrote, he was the Chess Journalist of the Year in both the years 2000 and 2016. He had been our May guest when he wrote the cover story on the U.S. Amateur Team East, which you can find in our podcast archives at uschess.org. But so, Al, I'd actually like to start there. The the U.S. Amateur Team East and the U.S. Open are very similar in some ways. In other ways, they're wildly different. So, you know, welcome back to the show. And why don't you start just by talking a little bit about the similarity and differences between these two premier events on the U.S. Chess calendar? Well, you know, it's an it's an honor to be on again. Um, you know, they're they're um, two of my favorite events. Um, they're they're alike in that they're mainstays of of chess, of tournament chess in the United States, both, both of them, I think, especially the team, uh, for example, uh, bring in many one year, one time a year players. In other words, members that, uh, perhaps they're getting on in life like myself and they play in one great fun tournament a year. And, uh, that that's the team. And of course it's the whole team element of, of not just playing for yourself, playing for your team, but the U S open, uh, of course, is another mainstay, and it's so historically important. Uh, you know, it's um, it's been going on every year, uninterrupted, even by war years since 1900. Um, so we actually had our 119th uh, in Middleton, Wisconsin, that we're going to discuss. But you know, since since we're doing some comparisons, and and I can work in a little history, which you know is one of my favorite topics in chess. Um, you, you you know, the U.S. Open is responsible for for opening the path to the development of chess in the United States, because George Kultanowski uh, was the first one, former U.S. Uh, chess president, and also, interestingly, the blindfold champ of his day, like we're, as we're going to talk about, Timur is of today, the, the winner of this year's. Anyway, he, uh, you know, the U.S. Open was very awkward uh, to to play in, as as all open tournaments were. They weren't that popular because there was no pairing system. Uh, this started out everybody playing everybody, and then it got a little too big. So they then they had to make it so that uh, there were sections and playoffs. And then he brought over the idea of the Swiss system um, in in a tournament in Texas in the 50s, and boom. He went around. He went around the U.S. promoting the use of that. Of course, he was a consummate tournament director as well. 
And that's really what led to the development of amateur chess in the U.S. Uh, and, of course, the supporting master chess in the U.S. So the U.S. Open is, um, you know, the, the, the grandparent of, of all the Opens. Uh, and uh, I'm so proud of it because it keeps innovating. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it's successful because U.S. chess adapts, adds things, restructures things. For example, it used to be three weeks. It went to two weeks, and now they've they've got a very sensible um, nine nine day schedule. That's the slowest schedule. In other words, two weekends sandwiched around a week, uh, so it respects the fact that everybody's just a little bit busier and doesn't get as long vacations these days. That's only only one of. Uh, you, you asked me to compare. I, I think I contrasted more. But they're both very important tournaments that uh, that bring players out every year. The, the history is fascinating to me. And one of the things you said that stood out leads to a question for me. So once they stopped doing it as a round robin and before they started doing it as a standard Swiss system, how were they pairing the tournament? Well, that, that was the, that was the whole um, that was the, old, the the impasse that was holding up the development of chess. You know, we've had uh, uh, national chess organizations in the United States, uh, they're just about the oldest ones. I think they're older than baseball, older than basketball for sure. Uh, so we've had organized chess for a long time, uh, nationally organized in the U.S., but there wasn't a way that we could incorporate um, a lot of players in one tournament. That was exactly the problem with the U.S. Open. And it was the problem that George Koltanowski uh, knew knew how to solve. How they did it beforehand was very clumsy. You know, either when the, when it was very small, everybody played everybody. Um, when it was a little bit bigger, they had sections. So that everybody played everybody in one section because they simply didn't have a system of pairing like scores. I know that sounds crazy to us, you know, like uh, maybe it sounds crazy to young people that we didn't use to, that we used to have have to use phone booths, <laughs> but that that was uh, that was the big development. That then then things took off because we could have big tournaments and we had a reliable way of uh, uh, of uh, determining a winner. And we always have a number of people listening to our podcast who are new to chess, new to rated chess, especially uh, who who may not know what we mean by a Swiss system. Could you sure. kind of in a nutshell explain what that is? Yeah, you know the the Swiss system um, is simply. Um, you play players with a like score. In other words, if you are good enough to win the first round, very likely you'll be playing somebody else who won the first round. And, and in chess, we get one point for a win, half point for a draw, zero for a loss. So say you lost three games. So you're a newcomer and you lost three games or you're having a bad streak. Well, you're going to be probably playing somebody in what we call that score group. Uh, now, you might vary by half a point if there's an odd number of players in the score group. But basically, that's it. Everybody plays every round in chess. We, we don't have very many uh, tournaments that are elimination. And that's a question I always get uh, from parents and, and, and even adult beginners. 
when you enter a tournament, you play all the rounds that are advertised. And so, yeah, thank you for that explanation. I, another thing that always uh, I find funny about this the Swiss system is you know, one of my favorite terms in chess is the the Swiss gambit. Uh, and yeah. Tell people that are new to chess what that entails. You know, I think it's an ironic comment usually, and that is that uh, say uh, say you're one of the top rated players and you uh, lose the first round. Well, that's going to give you a little bit easier pairings, right? Than if you won and you had to keep winning and you played one of the top players. So the Swiss gambit is simply, I lost a round so I could play a lower rated player. You know, it doesn't work very often. <laughs> you lose a round, you get a goose egg, you know? Right, right. Well, let's, let's jump into what was a very exciting 119th U.S. Open. And, you know, you know while we had a wonderful winner in uh, Grandmaster Timur Garyev, and uh, you, you write much about that in the article, one of the things that really jumped out about me the tournament to me is for a tournament where there's so often a repeat of the same old faces, uh, the same leaders of American chess playing year after year, the youth contingent this year was remarkable. We had grandmasters Lee and Tang both finished at seven and a half points, only a half point behind Timor. And grandmaster Liang, from was the local kid from Wisconsin, was at seven points himself. Right. This certainly bodes well for the future and the strength uh, and the health of this event. You, you know, it's it's an extremely interesting time. Everything you said is just right. And actually, in the in the um, Chess Life story that's coming out, there's a very interesting sidebar. It's called "Blindsiding the Old Guard on Move Three, where Timur is playing one of the champions from a previous generation and not really an old guy, just from a previous generation. That's the, the very well-liked GM, John Fedorowicz. And it's, it's a whole page sidebar because it is very interesting. The fact is that on move three, um, Timur played a move that is in no database, uh, that I could find. Um, uh, he, he says he's only used it in simuls before in order to make a unique position. <laughs> so that he could remember it. But readers of Chess Life should go to this story and look at the sidebar, blindsiding the old guard on move three. And it has a lot to, it, it has, I think, everything to do with what you're talking about, this changing of the guard. Um, and it's a fascinating game where, as in most, if not all of his games at the Open, Timur took chances in order to score full points. You know, he, he lost the game. He lost a game in round five uh, to GM uh, or a Corey. And um, that's a setback, right? I mean, he has this streak and he loses. But he went on to win the last uh, uh, four games. And that's how he got eight points. No draws. Goes, he goes through the more or less for the throat every game. So, yeah, there, there was this interesting batch of new faces at the top. And this very interesting clash of the very young modern GMs and the old guard. And we can extend that to some of the side events and uh, uh, some of the premier scholastic events that were taking place alongside the U.S. Open, which is one of the ways that the Open has kind of turned into a, a chess festival of sorts. You know, I'd like to say something about that because uh, it's particularly on my mind uh, when I was uh, observing the tournament, and I've been to a lot of U.S. Opens and uh, and writing about the tournament, and that was that um, the, uh, the inclusion of what we call the invitationals, we used to call them the junior invitationals, but I'll explain why we had to change that in a minute. Uh, in other words, the, the Dinker 
the the Arnold Denker uh, um, Tournament of High School Champions was the first in 1990, and then Dwayne Barber made sure uh, with his with his uh, uh, tournament uh, that we we got K through eight in there, and now we have the national girls tournament of champions and all those junior events have led to us a, a ceremony at the beginning of the tournament they're the first four days of the uh, of the u.s open while the traditional schedule is also going on but what happens is you you you've got um what's called the parade of champions and um a lot of pomp and circumstance to beginning the u.s open that we didn't have before and it's very nice and it dignifies the event it magnifies its uh, well it it reflects its importance uh you have uh, 150 young players and their families um being celebrated as champions from their states in this parade of young champions now the, when i talked about the u.s about u.s chess um adapting and adding now we also have the invitational in those same four days playing side by side with the young players uh, we have the the national tournament of senior champions, and one fascinating part part about that was this year that Alex Fishbein just qualified for being a senior and playing in that tournament. He won that tournament. Uh, he back in 1990 in the very first Dinker tournament, he won that tournament, and his son Mitch was also playing in the Dinker. And you know he didn't do so badly. Uh, Alex didn't do so badly either in in the ter- in the tournament. He tied for his, in the main tournament, the U.S. Open. He tied at seven and a half and was in the running till the very last round. Yeah, it, that was a fascinating story. And it, it, you know, a lot of balance in the universe seemed to be at play with 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 that story. And you know, let me interject. Yeah, you know the <laughs> not only that story, but re- if you recall the first the, the travel day of the U.S. Open. Um, do you recall the, the strange thing that happened to us when we turned on our computers on the Friday we were traveling? Maybe we were checking our tickets. Uh, um, it was the um, famous Google, Doodle, uh, Google um, Doodle right? Uh, that became a chess doodle. It was undoubtedly – the travel day for the U.S. Open was undoubtedly when more people than ever before around the world saw – at least pictorials of chess boards and chess peaches. They were, they were, uh, they were um, honoring former world uh, women's champ uh, Rudenko. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also with the uh, the parade of champions that you mentioned earlier, a, a, a lot of these very uh, positive things that have happened with these premier invitational events uh, are the result of the efforts of someone who earned a new title uh, thanks to the U.S. Chess Delegates. Why don't you speak a bit about that? Well, Dwayne Barber, who's really been uh, the spark plug in uh, both the Danker tournament and his patronymic Barber tournament, uh, he's been – look, he gives a lot of credit to Arnie, and he did work with Arnie Danker, you know, the former U.S. champion, uh, to set up the first Danker, no question. Uh, But he's been the one that that stayed on the – on the case, he, he works year round at these. And I remember, um, going way back to my first years at USCF when I was really sharing duties as scholastic director, working with Dwayne, who wrote the, the guide to scholastic chess and, uh, donated the money to have that published. So he's been a, he's been a leader 
uh, a benefactor and a spark plug in 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 scholastic chess and chess for juniors uh, since I know since the early 80s and possibly before he might have been even before that but I know him from that and he was honored this year as the dean of scholastic chess first one we've ever had a well-deserved title and uh, he got a standing ovation from our all of our uh, uh, governing representatives there at the U.S. Open. It was one of the few things that I've I've seen done unanimously at a, a delegates meeting. So that obviously everybody felt it was well deserved. Oh, no question about that. Yeah. Um, you you know one of the I, I want to talk just for a minute because um, I I think a very uh, a, a a person very important to our. Uh, history uh, passed away just before the U.S. Open, and we're talking about some surrounding events. And that, and that was former executive uh, director Jerry Delay. Um, you know, he was 75. Uh, he he's he's he was um, he had a lot of talents. He was a Ph.D. I believe in comparative literature from the University of Maine, and uh, he was executive director uh, starting in 1978 and served for 10 years. And uh, believe me, 1978 was the time when the U.S. just Federation, as it was called then, um, was severely challenged financially because of the Fisher bust. If uh, players don't know what that is, the short form is Bobby Fisher came along, won the U.S. championship and never played again. So imagine running a membership organization that got incredibly more popular than your wildest dreams and then fell off the cliff. Um, and all those people or many of the people simply did not ever renew before. On top of that, <laughs> the financial challenge of somebody before you selling about 10,000 life memberships and not putting away money to serve them. <laughs> so that's the world. That's the chess uh, administrative world that he inherited. And he saw the U.S. Chess Federation through that. He has many accomplishments. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take up the whole time with an obit. But I, I really think it's important to recognize Jerry DeLay. He uh um, he, you know, he, he was also, um, the, the one that put together the first chess hall of fame. It was, uh, basically, um, in the first floor of our offices in New Windsor. Uh, it was an important start and the U S chess federation got a lot of uh, press from it anyway. Uh, so rest in peace, Jerry delay. I worked with him from 1981. Uh, to when he left in 1988, when I became executive director. And, and I, I certainly owe him a lot, uh, taught me a great deal. I, I'd like to add, he was interim Chess Life editor uh, yes. when, when I was hired and started in two th the end of 2005. Uh, and uh, so Jerry was very uh, generous with his time and advice to me as I, as I was a new editor for the magazine. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, he, he, he was widely respected, a uh, solid, uh, smart guy. Uh, I, I think he even served as an interim ED at one, at one point when, when they were between EDs. Uh, I think that's also true. But you're right, absolutely. Came back in the 2000s and, and served again on an interim basis. Now I'd like to move to our uh, monthly feature. It's our best question contest. Um, and anybody who is interested in submitting a question to our best question contest, uh, please write to podcast at uschess.org. Uh, it is sponsored by uscfsales.com. And if we select your question as the best question, you will win a gift certificate for $50 to USCF Sales. 
So this month's question comes from William Root, who is the chess club sponsor at the Montessori Academy at Onesimo Hernandez Elementary School in Dallas, Texas. I'd also like to mention that his mom, Alexi, is the 1989 U.S. Women's Champion, and the two of them together co-wrote a feature in the December 2017 Chess Life on chess and music. So, William, thank you for your question, and it is, I have started a chess club at a school for pre-kindergarten through second grade students. What opportunities and resources does either the U.S. Open or the U.S. Chess Federation offer for these beginning age players? So, Al, you've got an extensive history uh, as, as, a, as an author and teacher and member of the, as an executive director of U.S. Chess. What, what opportunities would you say for the beginning chess player there are? Uh, for those beginning a program or even continuing a program, I really want to mention that the U.S. Chess Trust has a program that we, um, we will give away, will send weighted tournament chess and boards, chess sets and boards, uh, to your school or to your program, community program, library program, uh, uh, school program, junior high, elementary, high school. Um, it, it, it's um, uh, an even more sure thing if you're involving some Title I kids, um, but we'll examine any application and you can go online to uschess.org. We also have um, other resources, but that's the main one in terms of starting a new program. Um, we, if you go on to U.S. Chess Trust, um, I might not said that right, uschesstrust.org, um, you, you can also uh, see free resources about um, how to organize um, a chess club, where to get started, how to get started. And actually, Dwayne Barber wrote a lot of that. Uh, is that helpful to that question? It, it absolutely is. I, I think that guide for scholastic chess is also available on our uschess.org website. I'm sure it is. Yes. And and William, I will also uh, I'll post some links for you, uh, and for others that are interested in the same question, um, it'll be on the podcast page, so ev- everybody will have access to that information. So, and then as far as he also asks about at the U.S. Open. Um, there, there is a scholastic tournament side event that's not one of the premier scholastic events, but just a just a normal scholastic. Is isn't is there not Al? That's true. There is. Yeah. So if parents are, or older siblings are playing, and you have a very young kindergarten through second grader who's interested in getting their feet wet with tournament chess, look up the scholastic uh, side event at the U.S. Open. That that would be a way to do it. And let me just jump on there. The, the U.S. Open, um, although it has a long schedule and a shorter schedule and a very short schedule for the main event, it has many side events. It has side events for kids. It has side events for experienced players. It has a mixed double team. Uh, it has a, a a blitz team, a double, I mean, I'm sorry, a blitz tournament, a double blitz tournament. So if the U.S. Open comes to your area, uh, um, don't don't think, you. I mean, you should play if you want to be a part of history forever, but uh, you don't think that you have to dedicate a whole week to it. Uh, there are many things going on. Also, you get to walk around and look at the best chess players in the, in the country. And the 120th U.S. Open will be held in Orlando, Florida. So it's definitely a, a vacation destination. So, And we will have all that information up on uschess.org soon. So, Al, 
Thank you very much for uh, being a repeat guest here. Uh, really appreciate it. It's, it's it was a fascinating story. The the U.S. Open is always a fun one for us to edit for Chess Life. So thank you very much for your work on that and for joining us on Cover Stories with Chess Life. That was a great pleasure. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome. Bye bye. And now welcome to our show, Jennifer Shahadi, our senior digital editor, with our checking in with Jen segment. Welcome, Jen. Hey, Dan. Good to be back. And we have so much fun stuff to talk about this month. We should start with the World Championship. Uh, What is happening on our website and in social media with the World Championship coverage? Well, the World Championship, we've been waiting for so long. And November is finally here. Fabiano Carana versus Magnus Carlsen. I'm definitely on the edge of my seat. And... For U.S. chess, we have uh, Grandmaster Ian Rogers, um, just one of my very favorite chess journalists who's going to be on the scene um, contributing reports from London. In addition to Ian, we also have uh, International Master Eric Rosen, who's going to be taking over um, our Twitter and Instagram feeds for a number of rounds. And uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty thrilling. And I, I think that, of course, Twitter is going to be blowing up. During that time frame, I kind of imagine a lot of people are going to be watching the game, um, maybe even have a couple of different commentary streams open and then also have Twitter open. So, uh, yeah, make sure to keep at uh, U.S. Chess on your rotation there. So you're pretty connected to the top level players in the U.S. What are their betting odds on Fabiano being the world champion? I feel like a, a few months ago, it was like a lot of people were saying the two to one range. But now I think people are thinking it's much closer to 50 50. Uh, I think, in fact, like, I feel like the, the saying of late is that it's 50, 50 for one of them to win in the regular, um, the regular classical games, but Magnus has an edge in the playoffs because of his rapid skills. So rapid and blitz. So, uh, it's like calculating the odds that the match will be drawn. Like that's kind of what I feel that it's like 50, 50, but that if there's a drawn match, Fabi's an underdog, so we just have to figure out, like, statistically, what are the chances of it being 6-6? Six, six. And, yeah, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's, like, uh, very, very high chances for Fabi to win. And even better for chess fans, the end of the match is going to be taking place over Thanksgiving weekend, so a lot of people will probably have time off. And may, this may be giving football a run for its money. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I, I, it, I, at first I didn't really think of that as, as a bonus because I was thinking that journalists and stuff covering the match would miss Thanksgiving. But yeah, the, the, the positive is uh, you get to watch the games. And I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Karyak and Carlson um, had a game during Thanksgiving. And I, I remember we were all watching um, at, in between eating turkey. That was that was a game I think Magnus won. I think he was. Uh, do, you, do you remember that was because you wrote a that uh, that book on the match or you edited the book on the match? <laughs> yeah, I edited the book of the match, and you're and you're way overestimating my the abilities of my memory. <laughs> <laughs> Your memory. <laughs> yeah, well, I know it was a decisive game, and I thought it was the one that Carlson won. After Yeah, it was the one that Carlson won after Karyakin had won the day before. All of this world championship coverage is going to be taking place under what is a bit of a rebrand um, for us. It's a step back, but it's also a giant step forwards for us, I think. Um, and we've been calling it U.S. Chess News, but what are we going to be calling the news portion of the website going forward? Well, we're going back to CLO, um, which stands for Chess Life Online, but we kind of 
uh, I noticed a lot of people just used CLO and um, that that was very catchy. And um, some people were continuing to use it even three years after we rebranded it, which was a clue to both of us that maybe CLO was uh, the right uh, the right moniker in the first place. Um, and yeah, that's uh, really exciting to me because I think that U.S. chess news is a little confusing. It could mean like news just about the organization. Um, this is a little catchier, and I'm excited to go back. And we have a new logo um, designed by our art director, Frankie Butler, to go with it. Yeah, the logo is really cool. Very, It's a very sharp, clean design, and I, I, I think it's going to uh, really serve us well. Uh, the other confusion that we've had in the past with U.S. Chess News is in Chess Life magazine, we have U.S. Chess Affairs page, which is a separate item altogether. So I, I think this is this was a, a good decision on your part. So uh, good job there. I just wanted to mention to people, because some people, when they go to uschess.org, they get a little bit confused because it's not as easy to find the news as it was um, before this website rebrand. Our, our current website is kind of geared towards the uh, newcomer to U.S. Chess. But I really recommend that you get used to either typing in or bookmarking uschess.org slash CLO. Because that'll get you right to where all the news is and make sure you don't miss any stories. The world championship itself is not the only world championship activity going on. The women will be playing in Russia. We do have a couple of American reps. Let's let's talk about that a bit. Yeah, Irina Crush and Sabina Foyser are both playing in the women's world championship in Kanti-Mansisk. So that's very exciting. Um, it is happening exactly the same time as the uh, world chess championship, which I think is uh, a little a little unfortunate because you worry that the women won't get as much attention as they otherwise would. But who knows? Maybe they'll get even more because mainstream press is going to be really uh, fixated on chess through the month of November more than they are usually. So uh, it could be good or it could be bad. But of course, I'm rooting for um, our women, Sabina and Irina. Irina is rated right in the middle of the pack. I think she's C32. So she's actually playing C33. So that her first match is going to be the closest on paper. Um, that said, her rating was calculated before her extraordinary Olympiad where she gained a ton of points. Um, she was, I think she's kind of underrated at 2420-ish or something like that. I, don't, I think her, her real level, as we saw from the Olympiad, is much higher. So uh, probably a favorite in her first match. And then Sabina's playing um, the, the legendary uh, former world champion herself, Antoinette Stefanova. But I know she's training really hard for it. So I think that match will actually be very exciting as well. So is this a knockout format for the Women's World Championship? It is. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I, there's, there's been talk of uh, ever since uh, we have a new FIDE president, um, there's been talk of really professionalizing the Women's World Championship, which I think is really encouraging to people. So this is not just to determine a challenger to the current Women's World Champion. This is determining the final Women's World Championship title. Yeah, that's right. Do you happen to know in this, when we've had these knockout formats or championship tournaments, what the best result by an American woman uh, is? I've, I've never looked this up. Uh, yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I don't remember it ever getting that exciting. Like, I can't ever remember fe- seeing, like, uh, I, it would have been Irina, and I don't think she ever made it to, like, the semifinals or anything like that. So, yeah, it's it's really tough out there, you know? It's a really, really tough tournament, very grueling, um, very intense. So I think it's actually good. Our, our women's team did so well in the Olympia. They're kind of... They're kind of prepared to um, be in better form than I think they normally would. These even numbered years are insane in the chess world because what you have is the Olympiad and the World Championships in the same year. And then the odd number years 
we're going to be, we're going to be like searching for stories, right? Like it's, it's kind of crazy how it's like, it's really flipped. Uh, there's a lot more in chess going on in general these days, but I think that it's a little insane how everything happens at once. But like I said, there's kind of a positive to that as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, regarding the, the women's world championship, um, I have a good feeling about Irina this year. I think she's going to go far. Do you happen to know why uh, Nazi Pakitsi decided not to participate? I, I'm not sure. You mean the, the Olympiad or the World Championship? The World Championship. I think she's working. I think she's been saying lately that she's working on a on a business. And so that's why her chess activity is a little less than usual. So um, she hasn't explained what the business is yet. But you see from her Instagram and her social media presence that she's incredibly good at marketing. Like she just has such an act for it. So I'm sure whatever she's doing, she's she's got a great business plan. She's she's uh, friendly with uh, Tim Ferriss on social media. And I I think she really um, I, I, I talked to her recently and she's really interested in like all these different mindset gurus. Um, I don't mean guru in a negative way. I feel like that sounds like I'm making <laughs> fun of them. But, you know. Like the, these concepts of um, being efficient and um, being an entrepreneur. So I'm just really excited to follow her career. But my guess is we're not going to be seeing her play as much as we would like. And to pick up on your uh, statement about what how crazy the chess activity is on these even-numbered years, uh, there's yet another world championship for us to talk about. Uh, at, at, by the time this pod drops, um, the World Youth Championship will have already completed um, but the World Cadet will be taking place uh, as from November 3rd to 16, which is for 12 and under, I believe. That's right. We've got the four, the 14, 16, and 18 um, in Greece, and then they they split them up into two groups, which is which because I guess they were getting too large. Uh, yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, uh, there's Rachel Lee and Alice Lee who both made expert at the age of eight, um, becoming on the same week, the youngest girls to ever do that. I think that's the synchronicity there was pretty hilarious, right? Absolutely. Yes. It was, that, that was a crazy number. And that spoke to me more than about anything that's happened recently about the growth of American chess, that two young girls would reach 2000, um, within a day of each other. It's insane. And, um, I, I know both of them and they're also just like such great girls, um, really wonderful people. Um, you, you sent out a press release that got picked up by local news. Um, and Alice was on TV and she's, she's just so sweet. And Rachel is just, uh, so hilarious. Um, she's a really funny girl. Um, we, we, she was one of the students at the, uh, chess camp, um, that Greg and I um, taught this summer in St. Louis, U S chess school. And, She's so confident. It's just so beautiful to see. Like she just believes that she's going to win every game. And I, I think that's, that's what makes a champion. And I think both these girls might, might very well to join Irina as American grandmasters. But um, to the point we were talking about, they're both going to be playing in the um, girl, the um, world youth in Spain, the world cadet, sorry, in Spain. And uh, I think they both have very high chances for a medal, particularly Rachel, because she was born in January and when you're born in January, you get counted as like a year younger than somebody who was born at the end of the year. You know, that's how it works, right? In chess. I did not know that. Yeah. So um, January birthdays, like she'll, she still counts as um, seven, I think. Yeah, that's the point. You, they take your birthday based on January 1st. So if you turn eight on January 10th, then um, you're still seven for the year. 
Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you very much for, for uh, this month's talk. This was a, a fascinating uh, amount of material we had to cover for, for this month. Uh, again, it, the, the chess world is in a very exciting stage right now. And I look forward to talking to you next month as we talk about our plans for promoting the first American world champion in 50 years. Oh, I love the optimism. Yes. <laughs> many, well, maybe we'll have many world champions, Dan. We'll have Fabi and That's Irina right. and Rachel and Alice. <laughs> yep. Fabi and Irina on, a, on the Today Show talking about the, the, the dual world championships. Yes. Uh, I, I, can, I can visualize it. Uh, that's the first step, right? Speaking of mindset gurus. Yes, absolutely. So thank you, Jen. And we'll speak again next month. Okay, great. Thank you for joining us on this November edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Make sure to listen next month when I talk to Jennifer Valens about her article, The Chess Parents Lament. Write in with your questions now for Jennifer to podcast at uschess.org for our best question contest sponsored by uscfsales.com for your chance to win a $50 gift certificate if your question is selected as the best question. Our companion podcast, One Move at a Time, will be available beginning on November 13th on uschess.org and all of our archive shows are at the podcast link on uschess.org slash CLO. Thank you and good chess.